John chapter 13. So we finish this chapter, which leaves us about five more that deal with the last night of the Lord Jesus' life and come to a passage that has been called the most significant passage on the Christian life in the New Testament. I don't know that any passage in the Bible can be singled out for that kind of honor, but it goes without saying that this passage is highly significant and will mean a great deal to every Christian who will begin to get a handle on just a little bit of what it is saying. Now, in this chapter and the ones that follow, the Lord Jesus only mentions the fact that the disciples were eating. He does not go into detail about the Passover meal, which they observed, as some of the other Gospels do. He does not go into detail about how, after Judas had left and the Passover had been observed, that the Lord Jesus instituted a new supper that we call the Lord's Supper, where he taught them by way of symbols what his death would accomplish and what it would mean and how we were to recall it and, and bring it to mind until he comes again. But rather, John devotes so much time, and I'm so glad that he did, to giving us glimpses of other things that happened that night, to giving us details of the interaction between the Lord Jesus and his disciples, the, the beautiful things that he spoke and their, their inability to understand it and his attempt to explain over and again. For you see, Jesus knew that this was his last chance. He had begun when Peter had acknowledged him as the Messiah. It is recorded in the other Gospels when Peter told the Lord Jesus in response to the question, Who do you think that I am? Why, he said, Master, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was months before this night. And since that time, Jesus had begun, Mark tells us, immediately to teach his disciples that he must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And yet, all through that time, they hadn't really ever understood it. And they even came to the feast at Jerusalem expecting some kind of a battle, knowing not whether it would be successful, but some kind of a battle for preeminence after which they had hoped that the public would crown the Lord Jesus king and a revolution against Rome would be begun. But as John zeroes in on this last night, he tells us the beauty of the, the contact that Jesus had. Now, the Lord Jesus has set them up for what is about to follow. He had washed their feet. He had told them that true greatness is defined as service and that the one who would be great would be a servant preeminently rather than any other kind of manifestation of the greatness and the leadership. And now he comes in this passage to describe for them what has been called the 11th commandment. He called it a new commandment. Let us examine the text of John 13, 21 to 28. In verses 21 to 26 is an incident that I have called a troubling revelation. A troubling revelation. John tells us that the Lord Jesus was troubled and he testified, One of you shall betray me. Now you see, they knew that Jesus knew that, John, that Judas was going to betray him. And Jesus wanted very badly to share further and more intimately with his disciples. 
but he was troubled in his spirit because there was not a oneness of spirit among the disciples because Judas Iscariot was there and Judas had already made up his mind, whatever his motives were, that he was going to betray the Lord Jesus. I believe this disunity and the lack of spiritual oneness that was caused by the very presence of Judas is the reason that Jesus was troubled within himself. And so he says, bringing this matter to a head, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. At this point, the disciples began to look at one another. They were at a loss to know uh, who he was talking about. They didn't understand. And then Peter... Peter, thinking very quickly, now Peter was impetuous, he was impulsive, he was unstable, unstable, but Peter was decisive. Used to have a coach who, who would say at times, do something even if it's wrong. Well, he would never have had to say that to Peter because there was never a time when Peter lacked for anything to do. He did something even if it was wrong. Well, now Peter thinks immediately, I, I want to know who this rascal is. Now, the picture is this, and we'll see it as it develops. Jesus is seated uh, on the floor on a cushion uh, near a low table, which was the method, uh, the way that they ate. And on Jesus' left was Judas Iscariot. On the right of Jesus was the apostle John, and on the right of John was Peter. Now, Peter says to John, leaning toward him as they reclined, rather, leaning on an elbow, perhaps, he said, John... Find out who it is. And John leans back to the Lord Jesus and says, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, The one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped it, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As long as Judas was present, Jesus could not have complete and unhindered fellowship with his disciples that night. There could not be the oneness of spirit that he desired as long as Judas was there. Here is a graphic and tragic story. These 12 men uh, seemed, all of them, to be speechless. Actually, one of them, Judas, probably had a mouth as dry as cotton. For he, to this point did not know that Jesus knew anything. And yet here is Jesus who says, One shall betray me. The other Gospels tell us how they looked at one another, how they said to the Master, wondering if it could possibly be them, Lord, is it I? And I imagine Judas played that game and looked incredulous and perhaps verbalized the question with lack of conviction to the master seated on his right. Lord, is it I? A graphic and tragic story. These men were incredulous. They were self-accusing. But if you will notice in John's gospel and in the others, it never occurred to anybody to suspect Judas. It never occurred to anyone to suspect Judas. Remember that in some ways Judas had exercised leadership among the twelve more than any of the other disciples. Now we are told that Peter, James, and John were privileged to be with Jesus the most. They were around Jesus. 
They were with him at special times when the others were not. And you know, that means that very often when Jesus went off by himself, or for instance, when Jesus went up the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him to go on an errand perhaps to perform a miracle as when he raised a little girl from the dead, someone had to be in charge, and that someone was Judas Iscariot. He held the only office among the disciples. He was the treasurer. And it never occurred to any of the others to suspect Judas. There was nothing to give him away. He must have been truly the perfect actor. For to the very end, even after Jesus had dipped the piece of bread in the uh, herbs and given it to Judas, even then, as Judas left, John and the other Gospels record for us that they thought Judas was obeying the Lord's order to go and buy something that they needed or to go and give something to the poor. Now, I mentioned that Judas was on Jesus' left. I believe this is obvious from reading the Gospels because we know that John was on his right, and we know that the conversation between uh, Judas and Jesus and John was not easily overheard by any of the others. They were seated around small tables. It, is not, it, it was not like the, the classic paintings we see that suddenly bring first century Judea into the art uh, realm of, of Italy of the Middle Ages. It was not a very elegant scene. It was just a little room on top of a house. The floor of the house would have been mud covered with thatch. There would have been a mud floor on top of it, mud walls and some kind of a thatched roof a couple of small tables, a few cushions, and the disciples seated around the room at these small tables. Now, the others could not very easily hear what was said. And so it follows that Judas, if John was on his right, that Judas had to be on the left of Jesus. Now, at a banquet or a meal in the ancient East, the left hand of the host was the place of highest honor. At a feast in the ancient East, the host would select one of the guests and would serve him a piece of food. It was again a mark of the highest honor. And this night, Judas Iscariot, not once but twice, was treated by the Lord Jesus in a singular fashion of respect and honor above that which he showed any of the other disciples that night. Now, in none of these Gospels do we pick up any hint that it surprised any of the disciples that the Lord Jesus treated Judas that well. And so we must conclude that Jesus very often treated Judas with great honor. John told us several chapters ago in his gospel that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. 
And it's unlike anybody but Jesus to treat a traitor that way. You see, Jesus knew that Judas was going to do it, and yet Jesus didn't give up on Judas until there was absolutely no chance he'd repent. Jesus didn't give up on him until the last moment. Judas would have had to have heard the conversation between John and Jesus. And it's at this point that he must have began to be nervous. For John, just on the other side of Jesus, says to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus says, the one whom I honor above all the others. That's the traitor. And so he handed the sop, the piece of bread with the herbs on it, to Judas. Here is a troubling revelation. And it speaks well of the other disciples that they began to search their own hearts when Jesus said, one of you shall betray me. And other than Judas, only Peter was absolutely sure of himself, as we shall see in a few verses. And it was a great and terrible mistake for him to be that confident of himself. Here is a troubling revelation as they search their own hearts. And then notice in verses 27 to 30, here is what I have called a terrifying reception. A terrifying reception. Verse 27 says, After the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus therefore said, What you do, do quickly. In these four verses, we see Judas Iscariot at his absolute worst. We see him at rock bottom. We see him behaving and responding in a way to the Lord Jesus that would seem at first look to be absolutely impossible. I believe by what Jesus said to John and by handing Judas the piece of bread with the herbs on it, that Jesus was trying to get it over with as far as Judas was concerned, to get Judas out of the room so that he could get down on a deep spiritual level in the other teachings that he wanted to give to his disciples. You know, I think Judas must have began to be nervous, or begun to be nervous, as the case may be, when Jesus did this because I don't think it's far-fetched at all to understand that if the disciples at large, if the other 11, all of them, had realized that Judas was going to betray Jesus to death, they wouldn't have let him out of that room alive. He would not have lived long enough to go to the temple compound and to lead the guards sent by the chief priest to the Garden of Gethsemane and there to betray the Lord Jesus. But even as he took the sop of bread and left the room, the others did not suspect anything. He must have behaved like a saint and had the heart of a devil. You know, Judas must not have been nearly as controversial as Peter was. Peter was always doing something harebrained and outlandish. Peter was always getting himself into it. You know, Peter was bold. 
We'll consider Peter in point four, but Peter was no coward. He was anything but. Peter was bold. Why, when Peter saw the glory of God on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus transfigured in his glory, and Moses and Elijah with him, he had to say something about it. You know, Peter didn't lack courage. And even he let Judas go for some reason. Jesus once again had singled out Judas for honor. He gave him the chief seat at the dinner. He gave him the honor of being served by the host. But no matter how often Jesus tried, Judas did not respond. And if you'll go back in memory with me to John 11, it's quite obvious that when Mary, the sister of Martha, broke the very valuable alabaster box of ointment and poured it on Jesus and rubbed it in with her hair, instead of selling it and letting Judas hold the money, at that point, Judas decided that he had to give up on Jesus and take matters into his own hands. I think there is every possibility that Judas, although he was not a converted man at all, did not want to see Jesus die. Judas wanted to see a revolution against Rome. And I believe that Judas felt like if he could put the life of Jesus in jeopardy through betraying him, that he could force Jesus into doing what he wanted him to do. And I think that very often we try to put God in the same position that Judas did. We try desperately to find a way to make him do what we want him to do. Judas, because of the impracticality of Jesus' ideas, because of the unwillingness of Jesus to be a political creature, Judas blamed his treachery on Jesus reasoning that this poor, impractical man for all of his charisma and his talent needed a little reality therapy so that he would become the politician Judas wanted him to be. Suddenly, the crucial moment came. One commentator has called this history's greatest defeat. I don't know if it was that or not, but I do know that at this time, having given him the chief seat, having honored him, having loved him, having shown him love for three and a half years, having given him the honor of the bread morsel, Jesus finally gave up on Judas Iscariot. And when he had given him the morsel, first the scripture says he gave him the morsel, Satan entered in, and then Jesus said, what you must do, do quickly. When Jesus saw that no amount of personal attention and no amount of honor that he could show to Judas Iscariot would do any good, he closed the door on Judas. He gave up on him. And then he commanded him, and the command, what you must do, do quickly, is in the imperative tense. Jesus was telling Judas what to do. That must have been a surprise for Judas, for until a moment ago, he had no idea that Jesus knew anything at all. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is telling him to go do it. And it was at that moment 
when Judas received the sop, and rather than turning his heart toward Jesus in repentance, he turned his heart the other way in rebellion at that moment. Jesus said, all right, you have made your choice. I will honor your choice. What you are going to do, go do it and do it now. Now, there is no suggestion in any of these Gospels that Jesus caused Judas to do anything. Rather, finally, after everything that he could do to win him and to woo him, Jesus allowed Judas to be the victim of his own decision. And he deals that way with us. We saw in Revelation 3.20 this morning, he won't force his way in on anybody. He won't make anybody do anything. And there will come a time when he allows us to be victimized by our own choices. Sometimes irreversibly. For Judas, at the moment of his final rebellion, he became finally and irreversibly lost. And the last appeal of the Lord Jesus became the occasion of his decision against Jesus. The Scripture says in verse 30, he went out immediately and it was night. And John has a way of, of using words in, in, a, in, a, in a very uh, symbolic way, in a way full of meaning. And certainly it was in the evening and certainly it was dark, but I believe there was a different kind of night for Judas turned away from Jesus and went out to do his own will and it was night. And it is always night. There is always darkness when one turns away from Jesus. Notice that the Lord Jesus always knew who would betray him and yet until the very end he offered him a chance to repent. He commanded him to go but remember that Judas went on his own. The choice was his. It was a clear choice. It was an unmistakable choice. And Judas came to the place where, where all of us come time and time again, where we really have to decide if we're going to obey God just because God said so, or if we're going to go with our own judgment and rely on our own ability to think and reason and make a decision. I believe that even until this time, Judas was not aware that he had sold his soul to the devil. I believe that in the mind of Judas, he was trying to make things come out right. But he just wasn't willing to do it the way that Jesus wanted it to be done. And so he had to try to force his hand. Even till the end, Jesus offered him an opportunity to repent. But despite all he could do, he crossed the deadline and he set himself against the Lord. You know, the things that Jesus had done for Judas that night by way of magnifying him before his friends should have brought Jesus to his knees in repentance. You know, Jesus just lavished love and attention on Judas. But he didn't do any good. For you see, the problem was not that Judas needed love and attention. What Judas needed was to be saved. What he needed was to decide 
to give himself wholeheartedly into the hand of God. And here is a terrifying reception. If you can see the picture of a man looking into the eyes of Jesus Christ, receiving food from his hand, and then going out to betray him. Terrifying to think that anybody could do that, isn't it? And then notice in verses 31 to 35, here is what I have called a tremendous requirement. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will do it immediately. Little children, I am with you but a while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. Now I say to you also, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, in that way that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. He says in verse 31 that the cross will both glorify God and it will glorify him. How would it glorify God? Well, it could only bring glory to God for God to demonstrate that his faithfulness was willing to go to any lengths to redeem man. It could only glorify the wisdom of God that he had found a way that unholy man could be brought back to a holy God eternally. It could only glorify the holiness of God, that God was willing to bear the penalty of sin himself. And it could only glorify and explain to humanity the love of God to realize that there was no price that God was unwilling to pay if by so paying he could redeem people to himself. The cross was the glory of Jesus. It revealed him to be a spotless and sinless lamb, perfect in every respect, who knew no sin and yet became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As the Lord Jesus teaches the disciples we can see by the things he has taught that he loves them selflessly he loves them sacrificially he loves them understandingly and he loves them forgivingly and there is no such thing as love which does not forgive with or without an apology. For you see, love doesn't have anything to do, nor does forgiveness, with what somebody else is or does. Love has only to do with who, what, and so forth the lover is. And when you love, you do not love because of what someone else is. It's because of what you are. And when you forgive, you do not forgive because of what someone else is. You forgive because of what you are. 
and an, an unwillingness or an inability to forgive has said nothing about anybody except the one who will not do it. There was no one at the foot of the cross tapping Jesus on the toe and asking his forgiveness. And yet he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There was no one under the shower of heavy stones whispering in Stephen's ear as he was stoned to death. Stephen, now I'm really sorry about this. But Stephen, before he died, cried to the Father, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Peter said to Jesus, when Peter thought he was really learning something, Peter said, Why, Lord, shouldn't I be willing to forgive my brother seven times in a day if he asked for it? And the reply of the Lord Jesus was, Peter, you'd better forgive him 70 times seven whether he asked for it or not. Jesus loved them selflessly, sacrificially, understandingly, forgivingly. And Jesus, this night, is trying to prepare his disciples for what is about to follow and using every moment very well before he goes to the cross so that they can begin to understand. We come in verses 34 and 35, despite what Brother Owens read to us, to what some have called the 11th commandment, what the Lord Jesus called a new commandment. Now, in the Ten Commandments, we are commanded to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and that's a lot of love. But this is indeed a new commandment that goes far beyond the Ten Commandments. We are commanded to love each other in the same way that Jesus loves us. And we need to finally learn, all of us, and keep remembering and back up and make restitution and get over it and so forth and so on when we forget it. We need to keep remembering this. There is basically one root cause behind virtually all problems that occur in a family, and a church is just a big family. And that's a lack of love. Now, you can call it anything you want to, and you can blame it on me, and I can blame it on you, but it's just a lack of love, and that's all there is to it. It is nothing more. And you prove that you do not live and that you do not forgive when you talk about an offense that someone has done. The book of Proverbs says, not once but twice, he who loves covers an offense, and he who hates spreads it abroad. Now, very often we deal with symptoms. You have fever, you take aspirin. Well, you may die. The aspirin may bring the fever down, but the fever may not be the problem. It just may be a symptom. Very often we deal with symptoms, but the problem is a lack of love. And what somebody else has or hasn't done or will or won't do doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you love them. And as far as God is concerned, it really doesn't make any difference who's right. 
Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, love one another in the same way that I have loved you. How did he love us? He loved us sacrificially. He was willing to die for us. And it's exactly the opposite of that, to be offended when our, quote, rights, end of quote, are violated. How does he love us? He loves us understandingly. And the last thing we want to do is to understand, and the first thing we want to have done is for somebody to understand us. How does he love us? He loves us selflessly. As Peter Lord and others have said, dead men have no feelings. As the book of Psalms says, great peace have they who love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. How does he love us? He loves us forgivingly. We're told in the book of 1 John, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And the tense of the two Greek verbs involved there tells us that when we sin, the advocate goes to work, whether we ask for it or not. Now, if we confess, he cleanses and restores us. But if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, that teaches us if we're to love one another the way Jesus loves us, that there is one proper response to anything that anybody does that might be offensive. And that's to pray for them. And praying means talking to God, not really letting anybody else in on it. For you see, hatred spreads an offense and love covers it up. As we studied in First Peter, love covers a multitude of sins, not your own, but the other person's. Here is a tremendous requirement that the Lord Jesus lays on us. In the book of 1 John again, John says three things about the one who does not love. He says, number one, they are in the darkness. Number two, they are dead. Number three, they are of the devil. Now, that's just a plain statement of fact, and you're going to have to tear out about the last 40 pages of your Bible to get rid of that one because it's there. He doesn't state it as a possibility. He doesn't state it as a probability. He states it as a fact. And what anybody else does or doesn't do to any of us doesn't alter that fact. For if Jesus, who is God, who is defined in the book of 1 John as love, is within us, and we have fellowship with him, we do love. There's no question about it. And it doesn't have anything to do with how anybody else does or does not respond to us, regardless of what they do. He calls this kind of love a, a new commandment. The word new is the word fresh. It means a new kind of love, his kind of love. And he says in verse 15 that this love, the kind he has shown us, is the badge that shows the world that we are the Christians that we are Christians. G. Campbell Morgan said, Then follows the arresting statement, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, not by the creed you recite, not by the clothes you wear, not by the hymns you sing, nor by the ritual you observe, but by the fact that you love one another. Tertullian tells us that in the early years of Christianity, the exclamation that was made about the Christians by the Romans was, See how these Christians love one another. 
The measure in which Christian people fail to love each other is the measure in which the world will not believe in them or their Lord. This is the final test of discipleship according to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus said there is one way, not two, three, not any alternatives. There is one way that anybody has to know for sure that any of us are Christians. And that's if we love each other. Can't hide behind service. Can't hide behind giving. Can't hide behind activity or, quote, faithfulness. And faithfulness means to obey God, and he commands us to love, so the one who doesn't is not faithful. Can't hide behind anything. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now that sword cuts in a lot of directions. It means that we, we need to show love. No two people are alike. And that's very difficult for some people to do. But if we truly love, I think it probably means that we won't demand a certain kind of visible presentation of love from somebody else. You know, think of it in your home. We have two children in ours, a five-year-old and a four-month-old. The one that demands the attention is the baby. You know, the baby's the one that cries. The baby's the one that hollers. Well, I take that back. The other one does too. But, you know, someone who's mature enough to love anybody, love is not selfish, and it is selfish to demand. It's not love. I think that means it's incumbent on all of us to try to learn to show and my mother, bless her heart, she finally got out of town yesterday after taking her to the airport and her sitting behind the window looking around for four hours while we got back out there in the snowstorm. But my mother is so wise in so many ways. And you know, there are those little tidbits of things that mothers say that you never forget. And years ago, my mother said, I've learned not to expect anything from anybody. Now, she wasn't being cynical. She was not being skeptical at all. And she said, that means whenever somebody does anything for me, it makes me happy. To demand that we are loved in the way that we interpret it is just absolute proof positive of spiritual babyhood. However, to be unwilling to try to do all that we can to love and to show it and to learn how is also a mark of immaturity. Minucius Felix, a Roman, wrote in a letter to, a, to an acquaintance elsewhere. He said, why these Christians seem to love each other before they even get acquainted. The Roman 
persecutor Julian wrote, the master of these Christians have, has given them some kind of a foolish idea that they are all brothers. Consider the power of those testimonies coming from men who were pagan infidels. Tertullian, the church historian who Morgan quoted, said it was often exclaimed, see how they love one another. Here is a tremendous requirement. Arthur Pink says, love is the badge of Christian discipleship. It is not knowledge, nor doctrine, nor activity, but supremely love which identifies a follower of the Lord Jesus. As the disciples of the Pharisees were known by their garments and the disciples of John were known by their baptism, so the mark of a true Christian is love, and that a genuine and active love, not in words only, but also in deeds. And you know, there's a very practical angle to this. And I believe there's a reason why the Lord Jesus taught it again the night before he, he died. You know, those disciples didn't have a lot in common. Matthew was of the tribe of Levi, but he had gotten away from the calling of his family, which was to minister to the Lord in the temple. Matthew was tax collector. Peter and James and John were probably along with Andrew, the brother of Peter, were probably the highest up the economic ladder. For to be a commercial fisherman on the Sea of Galilee was one of the best jobs that a man could get. There was one Simon who was called the Zealot. Now the Zealots were a political party dedicated to the overthrow of Rome. These guys didn't have very much in common. And the Lord Jesus was trying to find, or he knew what it was, he wasn't trying to find it, he was trying to help them find the glue that would hold them together after he left. And he knew the only way that divergent band of misfits would ever stay together was if they were genuinely committed to one another in love. And so he laid upon them a tremendous requirement. Its fulfillment is the fulfillment of all the law. Its absence is the only real problem that we have. And then notice in verses 36 to 38. Here is what I have called a terrible realization. The Lord Jesus reveals in response to a very grand and glorious intention stated by the Apostle Peter. Lord, why cannot I follow you now? I would lay down my life for you. And the Lord Jesus, without a moment to waste, he didn't have any spare time that night, said, Peter, will you die for me? In very truth, I tell you that the cock shall not crow in the morning before three times you have denied me. Now, you know, Judas Iscariot is the most infamous name in the Bible. And the Apostle Peter 
is one of the most popular characters in the Bible. And yet, though Judas turned him over to the Roman authorities, the apostle Peter denied and even cursed, even knowing, the, knowing who Jesus was. Now, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Well, I believe there's a great deal of difference. And I'm glad that God in his mercy and in his wisdom is more generous with us than we often are with each other. For you see what Judas did, Judas did deliberately. Judas planned it. Judas thought about it, put it out of his mind, thought about it again. And finally, he deliberately set the Lord Jesus up so he could be betrayed. Now, Peter was just the opposite. Peter was so absolutely sure of himself and of his love for Jesus that he never in his worst nightmare even entertained the possibility that he would ever do anything against Jesus. Peter's sin, his denial, was something he never intended to do. 